Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are reading through Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series, currently doing our slow down reading of Master and Commander. Yeah. Ian, would you be so kind as to fill us in on what we learned last time and what we have to look forward to as we move into Chapter 9? It will be my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Well, last time we had a busy old chapter. Jack had picked up Stephen from his run ashore and uh, heard reported from Stephen that their ship, the Sophie, is being hunted by a Spanish frigate, the Cacafuego. They had disguised themselves then as a Danish brig and the Cacafuego, for it was she, found them, but was fooled by the disguise and also by Stephen's bluff that they had plague on board the ship right there. Dylan had seen this in a rather poor light. He questioned Jack's courage for not fighting the Cacafuego there and then. Jack had then contemplated asking Dylan to duel, but I think to everyone's relief, did not. Back ashore in Mahon, Admiral Keith had told Jack that Jack would never become a post-captain, given his current record of insubordination, but said nonetheless that Jack could have another cruise while his luck was still holding out, as long as he could do that after he returns from this trip to Egypt, to Alexandria. Jack and Stephen had met Mr. and Mrs. Ellis at a rather execrable dinner and had agreed to take their son, young Ellis, as a guest on their next trip with a view to making him a midshipman. And to cap all of this rather disappointing series of events, uh, Molly Hart, Jack's paramour, had appeared to be involved with another officer on the Mahon station, Colonel Pitt. So, Mike, this time, this time, the Sophie heads back for Mahon. The Sophie encounters the French, um, welcomes a new potential midshipman and breaks in another. Stephen practices resurrection using a bellows. There's poetry from Moet. There's a Russell Crowe alert. We have continued tension among the officers aboard the Sophie. We have a chase, lots of rowing, lots of disappointment for Jack. We have rumours of peace, heaven forbid, and a questionable time ashore. Ah, we better get started, Mike. Boy, yeah, it sounds like quite the chapter here. Well, maybe as you ended chapter eight, you were sort of looking forward to hearing about the Sophie's adventures with Sir Sidney Smith, yeah. possibly yeah. even spotting the occasional unicorn. That's kind of a spoiler and not a spoiler for, yeah. for us way down in the in the canon here. But we actually, as O'Brien so often does, join our heroes on their return back from seeing Sir Sidney Smith, and we don't hear anything about that. They've watered at Malta. They're heading back for Mahan. And Stephen is, is saying, you know, perhaps I, I shouldn't be complaining, but he's writing in his journal about all the classical locations and wonders of nature that he was not allowed to enjoy on the trip out, adding... I'm obliged to restrain myself from wishing Jack Aubrey's soul to the devil. So, boy, Ian, sounds like Steve is pretty miffed here at the moment. I mean, there's this long list of things that he missed. Any highlights there? Well, it's funny. By the way, I think this is the first time we've heard outright dissatisfaction from Stephen in the conduct of his new friend, Jack Aubrey, here. He's got this long list of things that he's disgruntled with that he didn't see. He mentions Candia and its mountains. He mentioned that right at the end of the last chapter and right at the beginning of this one. That's what he didn't see. Uh, Mike, I think Candia refers to Crete, which is the setting for some very, very ancient tales from mythology. King Minos, the, an early Hunger Game type event featuring part bull, part man, the Minotaur. Mount Ida or Ida on the island is supposed to be one of the birthplaces for Zeus. And this mountain was sacred to the Titaness Rhea, sometimes called the mother of the gods. So Mike, this is real kind of hardcore classical history that might have been missed out if we hadn't managed to step ashore on Candia slash Crete. It's also one of the earliest places where inscriptions of Greek law exists. And in the 5th century BCE, these laws had set out this interesting balance between aristocratic power and civil rights, which is a topic that we've talked about already in this book, and Stephen is going to bring us back to many times again in the canon. And interestingly, also, women had more rights in this Cretan society than in later classical times. Uh, maybe this is an Easter egg from O'Brien. This, this classical reference, the subtext about aristocracy and power, and the subtext about feminism as well. That all sounds like his, his home territory, right? 
Right. And, and, you know, and we have Stephen sort of complaining that all these other things were so close at hand. I mean, you know, we were right there. And, and you, you, know, you know, from your nautical days here, <laughs> that yeah. some of them were not so close at hand, right? Really not. Like, go on cannonade.net and look at Tomahorn's map or just right. go on a map and, you know, stretch a string from Alexandria to Mahon, Athens the Peloponnese, the Cyclades, these are not places that are just a half-hour detour away from that route. These are places that would involve a significant detour. I, I think that we know that Patrick O'Brien wasn't very good at understanding the consequences of speed and distance and time in real-world sailing, and maybe he's passed that little myopia of his on to his character, Stephen Matcher, in here. Right, right. Well, we're going to see some of these references again later in Treason's Harbor, but we won't go into them. And there's, you know, it's just a a wealth. The the list here is just a wealth. But uh, Stephen goes on and and, and he doesn't just condemn Jack's soul to the devil. Uh, Hopefully he reflects a little bit more. Yeah. As, as, as well as reflecting on how he's missed out on all these classical and natural discoveries, he recounts many reasons that he does have, nonetheless, for rational exultation. He says that the weeks have been very peaceful and would have been some of the happiest that he'd known if he had not, says the text, if he had not been so aware that J.A. and J.D. might kill each other. Mm. So there's the real threat of a duel. We had the opening paragraphs of this book beginning with a sort of slightly light-hearted almost comedic passing possibility of a duel. But I think this is genuine, serious, bad blood here between Jack and James Dillon. Jack is still wounded by the remarks that Dillon made about his failure, he saw as he saw it, to take the Cacafuego or to attack the Cacafuego. Dillon is quieter, but as the text says here, he was wholly unpredictable, full of contained rage and unhappiness that will break out in some way. But, says Stephen's diary, I cannot tell what. It is not unlike sitting on a barrel of gunpowder in a busy forge with sparks flying about. The sparks of my figure being the occasions of offence. Wow. So Stephen's pretty nervous about where this all might be headed and what little tiny taking of offence might trigger a big reaction between Jack and James here. Yeah. And, and O'Brien contrasts, you know, kind of this current powder keg with, uh, and, and, you know, Stephen's pros and cons about the trip with a little bit of reflection back on the journey they'd had from Mahand down to Alexandria. You know, it had been extremely fast. Um, the Sophie, while they paused a little bit in the Greek waters, had scraped her bottom. They, you know, Stephen talks about, you know, seeing these gorgeous, beautiful sights in excellent weather, about playing music together with Jack right there up on deck. And, and O'Brien gives us these lovely cinematic images of their days and nights on that. Um, we learned that their gunnery continued to improve. They're finally now firing three broadsides in five minutes. And Jack, now that they're headed home, is really set on getting back as quickly as possible. He wants to show his attention to his duty. He wants to you know, convince Lord Keith that, no, 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 he is a man that follows orders and gets them done effectively and efficiently because that speech from Keith really chills and haunts him. Yeah, it does. And, and we, we get a little bit of prodding at this. And maybe for the reader, it's easy to think, well, of course, Jack wants to be promoted. And of course, he wants a career. He's clearly a Navy guy through and through. But Stephen kind of picks at the edges of this a little bit with his gentle banter. Well, maybe not so gentle. And he wonders aloud why... The prospect of not becoming a post-captain worries Jack so much. And he gives us a little bit of exposition here about what's going on with ranks and symbols in the Navy. He says, is this a peevish desire for symmetry, a longing to wear two epaulettes? And he points out that that Jack is already addressed customarily as captain. And by the way, the, we, we already know that Jack being promoted to master and commander had had one epaulette. And Stephen's saying, what, you're hacking, hankering for a second one? And Jack joins in with the banter and the dry humour and with a bit of patience says, well, that does occupy a great share of my heart, of course, along with eagerness for an extra 18 pence a day. And he goes on to nicely correct Stephen's half-correct impression of the importance of the epaulettes. He says that it's true that I'm called captain by courtesy, just as he says ship surgeons are called doctor, even though lots of them aren't. And that it's not so much that he's going to get straight into two epaulettes. First of all, he's just going to wear the existing epaulette, but on the other shoulder, 
until he's been in post as a post captain for three years. But that once a man is named post, his progression up through the ranks to one day reaching the height of admiral is based on seniority alone. Doesn't require merit, doesn't require luck or interest or good favor with his superiors. And Mike, you can see how it kind of appeals to Jack that there's a point that I can get to and then I'm on the kind of career conveyor belt for life. He's had quite the time on the conveyor belt with superior officers, including Keith and Hart and all the rest. Uh, sometimes he's legitimately been in trouble and sometimes he's just been unlucky. Right, right. Well, Jack invites Stephen to his weekly dinner. Once a week, he invites the officer of the watch and the midshipman of the watch. And, and he's taking particular pains, despite this bad blood with Dylan, to make sure that they continue to interact very civilly in company, you know, when they're around other people on the ship here. So today, indeed, the guests happen to be Dylan and Henry Ellis, the son of the couple the Hearts had introduced them to in last chapter that you mentioned in the introduction there. And and similarly, kind of Dylan's going along with this civility. And so the gun room, you know, once a week is inviting Jack to eat with them and Dylan hosting, of course, the gun room here. But you know, as as they get together for this meal, they're sitting down there. And Ellis, we hear a little bit more about that. He, he had started off when he came on board the ship, very pleasant, timid, modest. He was mercilessly made game of by Ricketts and Babington. But that having now sort of found his place, he is given somewhat to prating. And Ian, we've talked about prating elsewhere in the series, but for those of us who don't speak English, English, you, you might translate for us here. <laughs> well, for those of us who don't speak 1802 English, English in particular, uh, pr- prating is talking foolishly or at tedious length about something. And I think, you know, that's that's where Ellis has carelessly put himself now that he knows a little bit about life aboard a ship of the Royal Navy. Nice, nice. Anyhow, Ellis, bless him, is is clean, he's presentable, he's silent, he wolfs down whole mouthfuls of his mutton without chewing. Um, and in kindness to his guest, Jack asks to drink a glass of wine with Ellis and asks him to share some verses written by midshipman William Mowat that he had heard them reciting in the rigging that morning. Now, Jack hadn't realized here that the midshipmen were trying to provoke Mowat by getting him to repeat the lines, white as the clouds beneath the blaze of noon, her bottom through translucent water shone. And there's something about this sentence that seems to cause the midshipman to have some kind of conniption here. Jack encourages him on. He says, okay, continue, continue. This is great stuff. Stephen says, I'd love to hear these lines. And Ellis stands up and tries to recite this line, hopes to God that he doesn't die and can't make it. And I think, Mike, we've got here a classic example of minionitis here. We've got a little, yeah, a little giggly reference to the one of the words in the line here. I am the league's director, Silas Ramsbottom. <laughs> hilarious hilarious indeed i think they're all sniggering at the word bottom here. right right well you know jack saves him you know he, he can't get this word out but as, as he's kind of stumbling and pausing jack cries damn fine verse and notes that the verse is edifying too it's not only damn fine but edifying here before turning to Dr. Matron and asking him to drink a glass of wine. Now, this this comment of Jack's that this is edifying or providing moral or intellectual instruction kind of makes me wonder if Jack actually had known what was going on up in the tops there as the boys were mercilessly (laughs) teasing Moet and was somehow using this to guide Ellis into better behavior. You know, it's subtle, maybe not, but I can sort of see Jack doing that, certainly he wouldn't be calling him out for it in front of the officers here at dinner, I don't think. No, indeed. Well, we, we may never get to find out because the dinner, which was going along pretty well up to that point, is interrupted by Moat, who comes in and reports a sail in sight. Uh, this is a frigate that they notice, even from far, far distant, with the, th- with the ship just topsails up on the horizon, that it doesn't seem to be handling its sails well, and replies to the Sophie's private signal with a six-months-out-of-date private signal reply and the blue ensign and jack smokes this straight away is not quite right he has the sophie turn away and raise more sails and using dylan's glass which is the best one aboard the ship he takes a look and one of the crew recognizes her as the didonneurs a french 
man of war carrying 26 18 pounders on her main deck so mm. ooh, that must be three or four times the weight of metal of the sophie um, 18 long eights on the quarter deck and forecastle and a brass long 12 as a bow chaser so there's 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 gunnery and mm. to spare aboard this french frigate we learned this because andrews the crewman who was making this observation had been a prisoner aboard her now Jack is relieved then that the sun is going to set in four hours because that gives him time to do some kind of a manoeuvre that might avoid him having to be, you know, in an unequal contest with the Dédaigneurs here. Even though this friendship is faster than the Sophie, he, Jack, thinks that she's unlikely to catch up with him before dark and hopes that he can stay ahead and slip away in the night. However, he realises every yard might count, which might, might that might be a pun, that might be a middle of wordplay on yard, and it's certainly a nice reflection here of the usual. There's not a moment to lose. Right, right. I love the uh, the little pun there, and I love this news that you know, French for disdainful, you know, showing yeah. contempt or a lack of respect here. Yeah. By the way, was an actual French frigate. The the guns on it, depending on which you know reference you're using, change a little bit, but still, you know, as you mentioned, highly would outgun the Sophie here. She was uh, she was launched in 1797 captured by the Royal Navy in 1801. So interestingly, very close to here. And, you know, ultimately sold out of service in 1823. But she maintained her name, even as His Majesty's ship, still Dittenews. Very good. So, Mike, we've got a chase brewing here. This is not by any means the first time we've had a chase. But interestingly, this is a chase that has the chance to bring us back, I think, to Russell Crowe and the Master and Commander movie. Let's just see how this is going to go. We're getting towards sunset. The Sophie's drawing away with all of her sails spread. Jack is concerned about the poor state of his sails, and he's watching closely as this frigate seems to be keeping up, maybe catching up, we don't know. And we've broken out of this focus that Jack has on the on the ship chasing with this cry of man overboard. And he sees the figure of midshipman Ellis, this young kid, sweeping past the ship. Somebody throws a line, Ellis misses. And Mike, like, as I first read this, I remember thinking, like, 99% of my brain is thinking, the kid's done. Right. This, is just a, this is just a tragic moment, and they're going to sail past, and we have to think farewell to Ellis. But Jack actually thinks simultaneously about the 90 lives that he has aboard the Sophie. He thinks about the life of this kid in the sea. He thinks about Ellis's odious parents that he's made a promise to, therefore Ellis's status as a guest, Molly Hart's protege, and he commands jolly boat away and stops the ship whoa so mike the the whole course of this chase now hangs in the balance the sails are flapping as the ship comes up into the wind jack is in a cold black fury even as he admires the competence of the crew handling the ship and handling the boat very quickly the jolly boat gets away and comes back rowing so hard with this kid aboard that one man breaks his oar and they bring the body of Ellis up on deck. And they say to themselves, this kid is dead. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Sophie tries to get underway as quickly as possible. She's too quick. There's a crack as an, another yard breakage issue happens here. The four top gallant yard parts in the slings. And it looks Mike, like this is just, just a, a terrible day at the office for everybody. Ellis is dead. They've lost precious time. They've damaged the fabric of the ship yet more, mm. even though the crew had responded beautifully despite the presence of this powerful French ship. Now, Mike, this is, this is a downer. Oh, it really is. Now they're in real jeopardy here. So we've, we've lost Ellis, as you say. We're in real jeopardy. And Stephen's fascinating. Stephen's watching Jack, and Jack is immediately giving sets of orders to Dylan, different set of orders to the carpenter and the crew, different set of orders to the helmsman, as he's kind of calculating everything that's going on here and what's best to do here. And then, you know, having fired those off, he looks at Stephen and asks if there's anything he can do for Ellis. Stephen says, well, you know, his heart has stopped, but he says, I'd like to try something. So, you know, Jack orders some men to help him. He uh, heaves up Ellis's body, has it swinging by its heels. And then all the crew members, all the ones who are not busy, you know, shifting the sails here, you know, are standing around watching as Ellis is swung, 
you know, the water is, you know, kind of coming out of him. And as Stephen's using the swinging motion to kind of compress and expand his lungs, Stephen bleeds him from behind the ears. And then he's, he's had his loblolly boy run off and bring him a cigar and some bellows. And he blows the smoke into the bellows. And then as Cheslin holds, you know, one of Ellis's nostrils and his mouth closed, Stephen uses his bellows to blow the smoke into Ellis's lungs. He's still swinging him, doing that compression. Ellis gasps, coughs, chokes, and he's back. Stephen you know, says, cut him down. And it says, it's clear that he was born to be hanged. And I was, I, you know, I remember sort of pausing on this going, clear that he was born to be hanged i thought well i guess that's kind of a funny line you know the guy's not drowning so he's you know he's, he's you know he's a a, a a little pesky youth so he's born to be hung but turns out that if you're born to be hanged then you'll never be drowned is kind of an age-old idiom right yeah. that you know kind of meaning if you're destined to die in a particular way you know no other disaster or injury will kill you thank you to the, the farlex dictionary of idioms there yeah. but I think there's kind of a bigger meta meaning maybe here, given the way our tale is playing out so far, this idea that you can't escape your destiny. You know, I couldn't help but think back to Stephen just recently talking about, you know, now, you know, he and Jack and Dylan are kind of at that point in their lives where they're going to strike out their character and get stuck in this inescapable groove here. But yeah. there's some other resonance to the canon here as well. Yes, absolutely. I, this is another one of these great stick a pin in this idea moments. It's very, very fleeting episode. Mike, in, in our first um, two episode go around through this book, I think we hardly touched on this at all. Yeah. But it's a really important moment. There's this affection and connection with this child who's aboard, and the child is apparently dead and brought back from the dead. And it's not the last time in the canon that we're going to have a really important affectionate connections between grown-ups and children. Not the last time we're going to have really mortal jeopardy and really touching scenes of you know togetherness and reconciliation between grown-ups and kids. If you've followed us through the rest of the canon, you'll know that we've talked a lot about this. Uh, we have a Crossing the Line episode, a special episode where we talked exclusively about the connection to, to children and just how deeply that might take us into Patrick O'Brien's character and his personal history and some of the very, very delicate bits of personal experience that Patrick O'Brien seems to have had in you know making happy relationships with children. So I think knowing what we know about what's coming in the rest of the canon for me mike this this episode with ellis actually has to loom a lot larger than maybe just a couple of paragraphs about picking the kid out of the sea yeah couldn't couldn't agree with you more ian i mean you know and it, it, kind of thinking back on it too you know our our crew has now watched our good surgeon the actual doctor matron not called doctor as a courtesy yeah. you know at least in their minds and perhaps in ours you know, essentially bring two people back from the dead, the gunner Lazarus, as he's now called, Lazarus Day, and young Henry Ellis. So this idea of, of escaping destiny, whether, you know, we're setting that destiny or it's kind of set by fate, and then this idea of escaping it through a friend or someone else, you know, perhaps also, you know, valid themes that run through this book and others here. And, and I think I can almost see, you know, Stephen wanting to play this role for Jack and Dylan to help yeah. them, if you will, escape their destiny, you know, bring them back to life. Sorry. Yeah, by the way, as, as well as Day and as well as Ellis, we have John Lakey, who suffered this terrible, terrible wound in his private right. parts. <laughs> and uh, that, was a, that was a particular bit of destiny that Stephen rescued him from as well, it, sewing it, up his private parts so neatly. Oh. He might not have been dead, but he probably wished he was, right? Yeah. And Mike, I really like this moment as well for the extra sort of twist of agony it gives to this misunderstanding, this hatred almost, that James Dillon has for Jack Aubrey. This looks like, you know, Jack deciding once again to abandon action with an enemy for something that might be seen as a distraction. But actually, the responsibility to make this call, am I going to stop the ship to save the life of the midshipman or am I going to continue on my military action? That's not a straightforward call. And it's absolutely Jack's responsibility. And it's a, a responsibility that James doesn't bear as a lieutenant. And Jack gets to agonize about it. Jack gets to bear the responsibility. And we see and admire Jack making a really rapid calculation and taking decisive action. 
and I th- th- this contributes, Mike, to my growing feeling here that I don't think I'd step far out of my way to have a beer um, with James Dillon because you know I, th- I think we're we're asked to see that James really misunderstands and dislikes this conduct of Jack's here. Dylan never had to witness the internal kind of agonizing thought process. He never had to shoulder the responsibility. So I don't know. James Dylan can bite me at this point. Well, you know, and there is that, you know, Dylan's earlier reflection that, you know, nobody else has kind of had this, you know, conflict of honor before. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here it is right here playing out in front of you. You're right. Uh-huh. You need to, to catch this. And, and fascinatingly, in the midst of all of these points that O'Brien's making, We've got this idea of this cigar smoke and bellows. And I thought that was a fascinating idea. And Stephen's inventive. And we know he's kind of a, you know, an an experimental physician, not just stuck in the old ways. And I I wondered, did O'Brien make this up? And of course, the answer, as it so often, almost always is, is no, it's very period appropriate. Although Stephen's approach to it is just a little bit unorthodox for the time, but not at all unknown. Blowing smoke, it turns out, into a drowned victim was very popular, usually done in the form of a tobacco enema. That's huh. right. You know, they didn't blow the smoke up their nose. They, some people did, but usually it was up the rectum there. In fact, in 1774, in England, an entire society was formed around this practice. You know, society at first called the institution for affording immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. And I haven't tried to do the acronym. <laughs> no idea when that would come. But later, you know, with perhaps some marketing and branding advice, renamed the Royal Humane Society. Good job, guys. But they actually placed resuscitation kits, including the bellows and the, you know, the the, the correct pipes and things for inserting it in the rectum there all around the River Thames to revive people who had recently, you know, apparently drowned here. You know, they had a little poem that they distributed to help people remember. Um, Tobacco glister, breathe and bleed, keep warm and rub till you succeed, and spare no pains for what you do may one day be repaid to you. So for what you're doing now, somebody may be saving your own life. And I I love this, but remember this tobacco glister, an enema. You know, it was just last chapter with Ellis's parents that Stephen said, all that glisters on shore is not gold. So, you know, so we've got, you know, O'Brien carrying this enema glister reference right through to tobacco here. And... We all know, or we can imagine, but in fact, this is where the phrase blowing smoke up your da-da-da yeah, comes from. <laughs> and by the way, this uh, I love the fact that this society was founded specifically to promulgate this idea of rescuing people from drowning. The Royal Humane Society still exists. The Royal Humane Society still gives out medals for great acts of rescue. For example, Richard Stanton and John Belanthan back in 2019 were awarded the Society's gold medal for their courage and leadership during the cave rescue in Thailand, where there was 12 young Thai boys and their football coach trapped underground for days. That story, that earned them the Royal Humane Society's gold medal, the Stanhope gold medal. So it's still a thing. Brilliant. Well done. Anyway, enough of... Thai football teams in caves. Let's get back to the Mediterranean and the Sophie and this French frigate, the Dédaigneuse. Um, the frigate is getting much closer. Remember, her 300-pound weight of metal is much, much, much greater than the Sophie's 28. Yeah. The gun ports of this French frigate are easily visible. She's having some trouble with waves. Jack's weighing up the situation here. He believes that she'll drop her royals, her highest and smallest sails so far before dark because she has this inexperienced crew. Remember, Jack spotted earlier on that she was handling the sails in a little bit of a unseamanlike fashion. The sun, says the text, seems to stand still as the frigate gets even closer. Jack is there pacing the quarter deck. The hands are piped to supper. And finally, Dylan comes up to ask Jack if they should beat to quarters. They do indeed. And Jack has preventer backstays sent up so they can carry more canvas. And Mike, preventer backstays are one of those tricks that we're going to get hear about it a lot in the canon later on. Um, preventer backstays mm. are also a, a, a stunt pulled quite often by Lord Cochrane, the real-life alter ego of Jack Aubrey. And a, a backstay, any of the stays, in fact, are the cables that are keeping the masts upright. 
and rigging a preventer of anything, in this case, rigging a preventer backstay, is basically to, to put a double alongside it. So as well as having one rope that goes from the stern of the boat to the top of the mainmast, you put another, maybe even a heavier one, to back it up and, as it were, provide more strength to support the rig so that you can therefore presumably set a bit more sail and carry the weight of the sail a bit longer as the wind gets stronger. So it's basically, it's a, it's a slightly ugly kind of rustic looking thing to do, but it adds extra load carrying capacity in the rig, this preventer backstay maneuver. Nice. Now, Jack can't believe that the Dédaigneurs isn't going to carry something away with all of her press of sail. So he's kind of doubling down on the possibility that the Dédaigneurs might break something, but he aboard the Sophie might be able to keep his ship whole for just a little bit longer. Well, he's got everything ready for battle, the frigates continuing to gain. And fascinatingly, Jack calls Moet over and asks him to recite his verse about the new mainsail. Yeah, and and you know, Moet's a little wary. Wait a minute, we're you know we're right here about to go into action. You want to hear my poem? And, and Jack says, you know, I'm really fond of poetry. Moet says the verses. Jack praises the poem and asks for some more. And and I I, I just love this. You know, Jack has everything ready to go. He's done everything that can possibly be done. They just have to wait now. And and I can't help but wonder if this isn't kind of his way of trying to calm everybody's nerves just a little bit. Now, everybody's like, oh my gosh, look at this huge ship coming after us. And, but look at the captain. He's not worried. He's listening to poetry. Maybe this is going to be all right here. But I I kind of love the way that Moet's verses essentially become sort of a soundtrack for the movie of the action around them because he's, you know, nothing's happening and he's got these light verses. But then the frigate fires its first shot just as Moet has completed a verse about the impervious horrors of a lured shore. Ian, you know, Jack really resonates with this. Tell us some more about a lured shore. Well, a, a leeward shore or a lee shore, there is almost always some land downwind of you somewhere. And a lee shore means that, that there's, there's some land close by, close enough by and immediately downwind of the ship that it presents a danger. It's a problem for a few reasons. First of all, if there's land immediately downwind of you, if there's a coastline immediately downwind of you, if anything goes wrong, if you break a yard, lose a sail, if you're at anchor and the anchor drags, you're going to be blown onto the shore quickly with very little chance to do anything about it. So you're in jeopardy when there's a lee shore. Second thing is to get away from a lee shore, you're going to have to sail to windward. And you can probably figure out that ships can't sail directly into the wind. A square rig ship like the ones that we're talking about here, by the time you allow for leeway and the action of the waves, can probably only sail between 60 to 80 degrees to the wind. So they've got to make this kind of zigzag sailing approach, trying to kind of claw away here. So you're not going to make much ground to windward very quickly. And this beating, this zigzag course requires you to make turns really often. And those turns, are your two options for making the turn are both pretty much fraught with danger. Tacking, when you turn the boat so that it passes through head to wind, is a really risky maneuver in a tall square ship. It demands seamanship and conduct by the crew. If it goes wrong, you can get stuck head to wind. And again, you're pushed backwards and you're back on the lee shore. The alternative is to wear which means that you turn the ship through 270 degrees so that it passes through stern to wind. And that's a lot safer, but you lose a lot of ground in doing this kind of big loop. So in fact, you might just end up back where you were. So, you know, we talk about ships clawing off of a lee shore because they've got relatively little option for making ground head to wind. And the stronger the wind is, the stronger the waves are, the more the jeopardy is. Hmm. If there are headlands either side of you, then you can get into this condition called being embayed, um, as in within a bay so that you might find that you actually can't make it past the headlands on either tack. Ah, And Jack also often talks about sea room. You know, I'd like to have a few leagues of sea room. What he means is I'd like to have plenty of distance downwind of me between me and wherever the lee shore is. So I've got room to maneuver. I've got room to change my destination. I've got room to tack or wear or do whatever. Nice. Nice. Well, the frigates continuing to shoot, but the shots are either short or wide. And and Moet's continuing, you know, with some different verses and everything. And then the first ball actually skips past the Sophie. So she's now in range. And 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 O'Brien writes, just as Moet reached the unfortunate couplet, transfixed with terror at the approaching doom, self-pity in their breasts alone. 
has room. So I think, I think you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, here a cannonball skips by Moet's talking about people, you know, terrorized, but he, he quickly recovers and explains to Jack that the folks in the poem are merely merchantmen. You know, these, these are, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're not us or they're not, they're not here. So again, there's that, there's that soundtrack element and a little bit of humor from O'Brien there. Well, Jack tells Moet to have the purser bring up his three largest butts, you know, these casts or barrels here. And he, and he tells Dylan that they're going to make a raft to carry a stern lantern and several smaller lanterns, but to do it out of sight of the friendship. And Ian, in, in other episodes, we've we've talked about a Russell Crowe alert, right? Yeah. A Russell Crowe alert meaning, you know, here's something that they used in the film Master and Commander Far Side of the World. So here's a Russell Crowe alert. You know, this scene was pretty much lifted from the first book to be, portrayed in a book, you know, story that largely takes place much later in the canon here. So as twilight sets in, Jack has the stern lantern lit and he goes below to his cabin and lights all the lanterns that show through the stern windows on the back of the boat. And, you know, the lights go on on the news and she takes down her main and mizzen royals. So she's just as Jack had predicted going thinking, okay, it's getting dark. I've got this inexperienced crew. Let me shorten sail here. And she continues to fire her bow chaser until it gets really dark. And and she's definitely no longer gaining on the Sophie. And when darkness falls completely and the ships can only be seen by their light, Jack has them bring this raft up behind the Sophie. And then he takes Lukak. We remember, you know, Bonded's cousin, puts a rope around his waist, has him get on this thing. And as they put each lantern out on the Sophie, he simultaneously lights the lanterns on the raft. Uh, and then once lit, you know, they, they bring Lukak back and they cast the raft off. So it floats away in the darkness as they sail on. And by the way, Mike, this, this is absolutely lifted word for word from the exploits of Thomas Cochrane. So not only was it in the movie, it's also, a you know, it sounds a bit like a Hollywood trick, right? But right, right. absolutely did this to, to throw a French ship off of the scent here. So now that they've planted this little deceptive uh, device here, Jack adds more sail. The Sophie picks up speed thanks to the load carrying capacity that she has with these preventer backstays. And after a while, we see and hear the Dedeneurs beginning to fire again and again, finally turning side on and giving this raft with the lanterns her entire broadside. The Sophies chuckle quietly because they can see in the twilight that the raft is unharmed, and finally the raft sinks. And Jack is left to wonder whether they'll actually believe that they've sunk the Sophie or whether they'll have discovered the cheat. And either way, he's pretty sure that the French crew won't expect him to carry on on the same course. And that's exactly what he does. And Mike, this is a really brave, but really deeply intuitive move by Jack. He's betting the escape of the ship on the likelihood that the captain will uncover the cheat and that he, the French captain, will change direction, will believe that Jack will have gone off in some other direction. And it was a great call, as I think we're going to find out. Now, Standing on through the night, looking astern, anxiously waiting for a French frigate to show up, is thirsty work. So I'm going to guess that we might need to pop below for a refreshing cup of coffee, and we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Hope your beans were as well ground as Killix. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Even though Jack had sworn that this captain, you know, would not believe them to continue on the same course, he stays up all night. He's up in the rigging watching for this ship. And at dawn, when the French are nowhere in sight, he finally heads down to his cabin. 
and he sends for the master to work out their position. He wants to know, you know, gosh, we've been running, running, running like crazy. Where are we? He believes in his own mind, kind of dead reckoning, that they're about five leagues or 15 nautical miles from kind of the coast of North Africa. But that would make them, you know, almost 100 miles off course, kind of headed in the wrong direction. And so any chance of this quick passage to impress the admiral are now gone by the board here. Yeah. Jack closes his eyes for a minute, waiting for the master, and Marshall comes in. He realizes Jack's asleep. And and I love the way O'Brien writes this. Mr. Marshall offered a few observations that brought no response, then contemplated him for a while, and then, with infinite tenderness, eased his feet up onto the locker, cradled him back with a cushion behind his head, rolled up the charts, and tiptoed away. So here, as you know, we're in this book where everybody's clamoring about what constitutes honor and firing and firing upon is a simple act of human kindness. I, I for one, am glad of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm pleased for Marshall as well, that even though it's unseen and unrequited and unappreciated, he gets to make this little gesture of affection for Jack. Oh. Anyhow, and Mike, just like O'Brien, we zip straight ahead. We get firmly onto the fast forward button here. And we rejoin the action as the winds are dying down and the Sophies are forced to sweep for 12 hours a day. That's using these great big oars. They're supposed to sweep for 12 hours a day to get into Menorca and they have to tow themselves into the harbor when they arrive. Backbreaking, absolutely hideous work. The entrance into Port Mahon is one of the longest and biggest natural mm. harbors in the world. This must have been just soul destroying. This is one in a whole series of disappointments that Jack is going to face as he returns. He gives one of his Royal Naval colleagues a lift on the Sophie, and rather than getting thanks and praise and congratulations, Lucky Jack, he gets his little snide remark in return about Jack having bought his epaulette at the wrong place. And he says, oh, yeah, those guys, their epaulettes, nine parts brass, very little bullion. He says it soon shows through. And this is all out of spite for Jack's luck in the cruising and maybe suggesting that, like the epaulette itself, that Jack's look is a little bit fake and a little bit showy and might soon run out. And Jack has heard these kind of marks elsewhere. He's heard about, you know, ill-natured envy for good luck in, in prize hunting. And he starts to feel a little bit like maybe that luck is running out, or at least the value of it to him is running out. The luck is diminished by a further disappointment. We learned that the high admiralty court expenses have held up the process, uh, that there's one cargo that hasn't been condemned by the Admiralty Court because it was consigned to a Greek ship under British protection. The dockyard is making a scene about this top gallant yard that he broke in the chase with the Didaniers and about the backstays. And most importantly, Molly Hart is only there for one afternoon before she heads off to Ciudadela to stay with Lady Warren. A long-standing engagement, she said. So, Jack's Stock is falling on all sides here, Mike. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not going well for him. And I, and I love that O'Brien kind of inserted that Jack had never once, you know, while he might envy something, he's always been kindly and good natured to other people who've been successful here. So, yeah, you know, yeah. a real contrast here. Well, yeah, and as you said, there's this, this kind of recurrent drumbeat of disappointments there. Now, he does hear a little something from Mercy. O'Brien doesn't tell us what it is, but he says that was pretty good. But the rest is just a continuing string of disappointments. Lord Keith had left two days earlier and, and Captain Hart had made it a point to say he was wondering why Jack had not made his number, you know, why Jack's been so late here. Ellis's horrible parents are still there and, you know, he and Stephen are obliged to visit them. And O'Brien says it's the only occasion in his life when he had ever seen a half bottle of small white wine divided between four. So <laughs> stingy little crubby hosts here. The new Sophies with this extra prize money advance that they've got have behaved quite badly on shore. There's four in prison for rape, uh, four who were still at the Turkish baths when the Sophies sailed. Uh, we've got some really bad injuries that the men have done to themselves on shore. And even the men making it back on ship, a lot of them 
are in their finest shore-going rigs, but they're now all dirty and smelly and unshaven. And Jack is, you know, he's not having any of it. And it's it's really easy to see that all of this is wearing on him. He is not himself. He's even thinking to himself, you know, I'm going to promote this guy up that scares him to death. I'm going to rig a proper grating and have them all whipped. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, you never hear this from Jack. Continuing this drip, 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 he's he gets a letter from his father and he learns that his 64-year-old father has married his 20-year-old kitchen maid, trying to write in these grandiose terms about why this was you know, a, a good thing to do, but finally equating the kitchen maid to Jack's first lieutenant, you know, sort of good for supervising the housekeeping. We can imagine what Jack assumes she's good for. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines here a little bit, but going, you know, this, this news uh, from Jack's dad, you know, perhaps, I don't know if this threatens his inheritance, if it besmirches the memory of his mother, certainly not the kind of news you want to hear <laughs> about your dad, not in these times. No. And it's another stick a pin in this moment here. Jack's mm, increasing frustrations with the goings on of his father ashore are not going to go away as we get a few more books into the canon. Let's put it that way. Well put. Yeah. Anyhow, he's reading this letter. He looks across the quarter deck and he gets a, quite a nice little sight to see here. The newly promoted Lukok, the new midshipman promoted from before the mast, is getting into navigation. He's working with his sextant. He's taking a real delight in understanding it. And this really starts to lighten Jack's mood. And he thinks, well, yeah, maybe life is okay after all. I know. I'll stop by Ciudadela on the way out to the cruise. So, Mike, Mahon is on the far eastern end of Menorca, and Menorca is kind of shaped like a an elongated grain of rice. Ciudadela is on the opposite end of the grain of rice on the far western end. And he thinks, well, if I'm going to sail south about along the south coast of the island, maybe I can pause in Ciudadela because guess who? Molly Hart is going to be there. They spend two hours pulling the Sophie out of Mahon Harbour, again with the oars because the wind's not favourable. And the master is surprised when Jack says, we're going to go south about rather than north. So he's not going the quickest way to Barcelona. He's going the way that's going to take them past Ciudadela here. Jack sees Stephen coming back from the elm tree pump. Elm tree pump with a chance to have the top taken off and Stephen can stare down through the depths to see animals and creatures in the sea below. Jack says he's delighted to be at sea again and asks if Stephen doesn't feel, as he does, like a badger in a barrel on shore. And Stephen says, well, I think of the badgers that I've known and say, well, like, that's not really how I'm feeling about this. And the two of them talk about badgers and otters and foxes and boars. They go back to the first night that they dined together when Stephen explained the Catalan language to Jack and talked about how his order of soused pig face had become wild boar when served by a Catalan cook. And Stephen tells Jack about two peasants, two Minorcan peasants that he and Dylan had heard ashore speaking Catalan. These peasants, not realising that Stephen was listening in and could understand their, their language, had been disparaging about the English and had exchanged some knowledge that they had about what was happening with the Sophie. They had recounted the Sophie's ability to disguise herself, her upcoming cruising ground, the time of her cruise, and the amount that they were paying for supplies. And given the amount of smuggling between Minorca and the enemy, Stephen tells Jack that he ought to assume that the enemy knows a lot, knows pretty much everything about the Sophie's movements and about her logistic situation and all the rest of it. Now, Jack had originally missed Stephen's point. He'd been thinking that the peasants should be more appreciative of the English protection that they've had for the last hundred years. But what he should really be paying attention to is the fact that loose lips here have the potential to sink ships. And Mike, let's go back to this phrase, don't you feel like a badger in a barrel? What do you think Jack means by this badger in a barrel thing? You know, I, I wondered about this, and it's clear Stephen was like, well, you know, the badgers I know, but this badger in a barrel, actual thing that, you know, people would put a badger, which which can be a pretty fierce animal, in a barrel, and actually even pub owners in England would have one on premises, and then people could bring by their hunting dogs and sort of if you will, test their mettle, you know, see how, what their courage is like. Well, they kind of go into this barrel after this badger here and the, and the badger kind of cornered, you know, fights pretty ferociously. So not, you know, not a wonderful thing. I've read some terrible stories reading about this online and how it's been carried forward. You know, one uh, current 
in, in, in the rural U.S., badger in the barrel test is to actually have the barrel in the badger and see if the hunters will reach in and pick them up and put them into another barrel. So, oh, you know, oh. it's kind of, you know, well, let me let me not go on there, but uh, <laughs> only to say perhaps that it's my understanding. And I think Stephen would get this talking about the badgers he's known that the badgers would much rather go away from people and dogs unless, you know, they're young or threatened or if they're very surprised. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm sorry for the badger. And I'm also sorry for Jack, who can definitely, I suspect, feel like a badger in a barrel on shore, as we'll see many times. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not the last time Jack's going to feel persecuted by what's going on around him ashore. Right. Well, this conversation about badgers breaks off suddenly as Stephen reaches over, grabs Jack's telescope, and tries to look at a dark bird that he's seen flying by. He's very excited, he says, in all sincerity, that it's a young bearded vulture. Well, said Jack instantly, not a second's hesitation. I dare say he forgot to shave this morning. His red face crinkled up, his eyes diminished to a bright blue slit, and he slapped his thigh, bending in such a paroxysm of silent mirth, enjoyment and relish that for all the Sophie's strict discipline, the man at the wheel could not withstand the infection and burst out in a strangled hoo-hoo-hoo, instantly suppressed by the quartermaster at the con. Right, classic Aubrey humour here, classic Aubrey delight in his own witticisms as well. And this this is picked up by James. Next time he sits down to talk with Stephen, James Dillon says, There are times... When I understand your partiality for your friend, he derives a greater pleasure from a smaller stream of wit than any man I have ever known. Jack is sitting in his cabin. He's excited about coming up with a new disguise for the Sophie, and he's especially excited about his evening's visit with Molly Hart. You know, he's thinking to himself, she's going to be so surprised. She's going to be so happy to see me. You know, maybe there's been some little misunderstanding. And at the same time that this is happening, Stephen and Dylan are playing chess in the gun room. And and Stephen's trying to figure out how we can kind of keep from easily defeating Dylan, short of kind of knocking the whole board over since, you know, Dylan is playing badly, but is so bothered by losing. Stephen keeps delaying, kind of waving his queen in the air, stalling for time, hoping they'll be you know, called to dinner or something, you know, so that they can kind of stop this game. And he's humming uh, a very bawdy Irish tune, which, you know, Brian just tells us the name, but you go back and look it up. And and it's a tune that says that men basically can't help themselves. You know, they follow the call of nature when presented with a woman here. And interestingly, if you read all the verses, it has kind of all the nationalities and people and different things, but how all these men fail despite their ardent desire. (laughs) Well, again, it's a bit of an ongoing theme for Jack throughout the canon here. Anyway, poor old Jack and his desire. Right. Anyhow, Dylan says in, in the gravest possible tones here that there are rumors of peace. And Stephen says that he's heard the same rumors and Dylan pretty clearly is not quite as hot for peace as you might think. He hopes that they see some action first. He says he wants to see what Stephen thinks of it. Dylan goes on and says, most men find it entirely unlike what they had expected. Like love in that. Very disappointing. And yet you cannot wait to be starting again. Wow. <laughs> really dark bit right. of comparison there for, uh, for James Dylan. He prompts Stephen to make his move at chess. And by the way, th- this is all very ominous with Jack about to sh- go on shore to visit his love, all these references to the black joke and references to being disappointed in love. Stephen says, well, going back to this comment about seeing action, he's already seen the Sophie in action and Dylan's pretty dismissive. He says, what, these scuffles? I was thinking of something on a rather larger scale. And this is even more ominous. The only chances that we've had for action on a larger scale have been the times when Jack has been face-to-face with a much more superior, a much more powerful enemy. And Dylan seems to be saying, I'm I'm all for that. I'm all for this kind of self-destructive kind of delight in taking on this really big, big enemy. Stephen, though, looks at the unguarded distress on Dylan's face and thinks that time has not helped Dylan to move on. The time that has elapsed since Dylan had his experience on the American ship has not allowed Dylan 
to come to terms with this. He's still deeply conflicted and deeply angry at the world. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as Jack is in his cabin, Dylan and Stephen are playing chess. You know, the bosun and the purser are elsewhere on the ship talking about, you know, just kind of wrapping up their discussions about their private arrangements where how they divide up kind of their, you know, their, their illegal take on a percentage of the things they procure, the things that are kind of not, you know, they're sort of in between their two realms of responsibility here. And then having finished that discussion, the purser says that the captain is going to end up losing the Sophie and getting everyone killed or taking prisoner. And that's why he's taking his son, you know, midshipman Ricketts, and he and his son are going to transfer to another ship. And he says he's just unwilling to run the captain's unnecessary risk, his usual capers like, you know, lying inshore, watering anywhere just to stay out longer, uh, his willingness to battle any size ship at all for what he calls the main chance, that the main chance is, you know, kind of doing something for your own personal and financial gain. Now, this is this is kind of ironic coming from the stealing purser here, you know. Yeah, exactly. I, I think he's like, okay, the main chance is really good, but at main chance, you know, that could get me killed, right? Let's just do this little, little petty that here. But the bosun kind of takes Jack's uh, cause here. The bosun reminds the purser, you know, of all that Jack, the captain, has done for the ship, all that he's bought and paid for out of his own pocket, you know, you know kind of going around the naval yards, getting it where the best sources are, the best materials are available. So, you know, he's saying this is this is not all for personal gain from him. He, he feels pretty strong about this. The bosun really wants to call the purser, as as O'Brien writes here, a mean-souled, doe-faced, son-of-a-cow-poxed bitch. But O'Brien writes he doesn't because he's peaceable and a quiet sort of man, and the drum had just started beating to quarters. Oh. Huh. So Jack calls for Bondon and says he wants to have the boat crew looking their best. And this is a bit of a shock for Barrett Bondon, who knows that this is not one of the days of the week when the boat crew are expected to be all shiny and shaved and smooth and well-clothed. It never happens on a Tuesday, especially not at sea. So he thinks, well, I've got to go and get everybody to the barber. You know, this is all out of sorts here. And everyone is surprised when they round the Cape and Jack has them bear up for Ciudadella and anchoring offshore. With a certain hint of, uh, of stiffness and some hidden excitement, Jack turns to Dylan and says, I'll be only an hour. And off he goes into Ciudadella. Well, we all know where he's going. Meanwhile, as Jack is ashore, life goes on. The sun sets. Um, the bell rings for the end of the last dog watch. Hammocks are piped down. The sun is setting. The watch changes. And the first watch is set, which is eight until midnight. Um, Lukok and the other midshipmen who have all shared in Lukok's newfound passion for navigation take observations of the moon and of the fixed stars and then eight bells rings. Eight bells and the middle watch. The lights of Sudadella are all going out. And now, Mike, it's midnight. Wow. So this this one-hour trip, hmm, taking a lot longer. And, and what happens? <sighs> At long last, we see the cutter. Cut us away, sir, reported the sentry at last. And ten minutes later, Jack came up the side. He was very pale, and in the strong moonlight he looked deathly. A black hole for a mouth, hollows for his eyes. Are you still on deck, Mr Dillon? he said with an attempt at a smile. Make sail, if you please. The tail of the sea breeze will carry us out, he said, and walked uncertainly into his cabin. End of chapter nine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, a really fascinating chapter and some really important, quite deep moments. More of this relationship with Dylan, more on this connection to the child Ellis. But Mike, still a lot of big questions and a little bit and a lot of big uncertainties for us here. Right. I mean, the most immediate one just now being what has got Jack so upset? Here, you know, what did, you know, what happened on shore? What did he learn about on shore? I remember, you know, Stephen learned quite a bit when he was on shore. And Jack now has been gone for hours instead of an hour. I'm really wondering what happened here. And meanwhile, Dylan is no better. He's still pushing for action in this very kind of bloodthirsty, unrealistically 
kind of pushy way, um, we have hints too that the enemy is getting better and better informed about the Sophie and where she is and when she might be coming. Maybe if Jack's been unlucky in love, he's going to be looking for some catharsis in action too. Perhaps this is the opportunity he's going to have to change Admiral Keith's perception of him and change his prospects of promotion. I don't know. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's just a little thing in this chapter, but to see that one person is doing well. And, you know, the, the guy that comes to mind is Lukak, Bondin's cousin, who Jack has made midshipman here. You know, this youngster, you know, who's come up from before the mast, you know, while everybody else is, you know, all this stuff is going on, he's actually taking to his position and doing great, which is kind of, a, again, back, you, you talked about it earlier, this thing about children in the canon that I love so much. Now, you know, Stephen sounds okay, but but quite honestly, Jack and Dylan really have me concerned and some of all this potential jeopardy brewing. And there's still, you know, there's unease among the crew. We're not quite sure how this cruise is going to pay off. Jack's luck might be about to desert him. I don't know, Mike. Maybe the only thing for it is to reach for another chapter. What do you say to just a little bit more practical Brian? Well, I should like that of all things. Closes his eyes for a minute, waiting for the marshal. Wait, Jack closes his eyes for a minute, waiting for the master. I wish he had named the master something besides marshal, because marshal and master, <laughs> the alliteration just nails me. There you go. Another outtake, Sam.